Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast, coming to you all through the European summer. I'm Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe. Don't let anyone tell you Brussels shuts down in August. I've just waited 45 minutes to be served gyoza and a lot longer for the main course at a packed restaurant behind the European Council building. And of course, Brexit jockeying and negotiations are as frequent and annoying as ever, both at the bilateral leaders level and between Michel Barnier and his British sparring partners. There's also a heat wave and associated drought. The EU announced Thursday that it's going to advance EU subsidy payments to farmers to help them cope and that farmers will be able to use land not normally available for production in order to feed their animals. In our main interview this week, I talked to Sue Duke, the global head of public policy for LinkedIn. You might think of them as a job-hunting website, but Sue explains how their data can assist policymakers across the board, and how you should and shouldn't handle the topic of pregnancy in the workplace. The podcast panel debates the issue of cost shifting in Belgium. That's where the EU dumps costs, like the building of schools for the children of EU officials, onto the Belgian state. And Belgium fires back with other ideas, like charging journalists to attend EU leaders' summits. Now it's time for our interview. Joining me now on EU Confidential is Sue Duke, who is the Global Head of Public Policy for LinkedIn. Welcome, Sue. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. Now, you've got a new job. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that new job is, what it means for you. And then there's a pretty interesting feature of the job, which is that you are based in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And now we know with a lot of global tech companies that they tend to put these big uh, executive positions in the United States. Mm -hmm. So it is a bit of a leap forward for LinkedIn and the sector to have you doing this huge role in Ireland. So give us a bit of the rundown there. Right. Um, I lead our, our team of public policy and what we call our economic graph team. And that team is focused on trying to understand what's happening in the regulatory and legislative world and trying to enhance LinkedIn's contribution to that space. The primary vehicle that we use to do that is what we call the economic graph. And the economic graph is effectively LinkedIn's digital map of the labour market. So if you think about LinkedIn, either a member's profile or indeed the profile of a company or a job, you quickly realise that a lot of the most important factors of the labour market are represented there people, their jobs, their skills, companies, the jobs they're advertising, etc. And what our team does is take looks at large numbers of 
profiles and company information and generates insights about the labour market more at a macro scale. So not looking at individuals or individual companies, but trying to understand what picture the aggregate of those insights can give us about a specific labour market or a specific labour market trend. I'm based in Dublin and for us, you know, LinkedIn is a global company. We think of ourselves as a global company. We think about the vision in terms of how can we create economic opportunity for everybody in the labour market across the world. And so me sitting in Dublin is is part of that global vision. To add to that, we do see that Europe has been a place that is really starting to think deeply about a lot of these future work, in inverted commas, issues. And so me being based in Europe and being able to make a direct contribution to those debates and for us to be able to learn directly from those debates is is very beneficial for all. Now, the economic graph stuff is so fascinating to me because we have, like you said, the official statistics agencies and so on. But they're not always mapping what people do. Often it's what people say they do or what some organization reported itself as doing. And we know that that's not always the truth. Not because people are malicious, but, you know, you you have access to that data about, you know, people actually voting with their feet and so on. But now that you've gotten to the point where you have, I think, 167 million users in Europe, it's kind of like you're, you're bigger almost than a lot of those statistics agencies, at least when it comes to the labor market and so on. So do you find that that opens a bunch of doors with policymakers? Are they ready to listen to what you're saying or are they still stuck in the traditional ways of analyzing the labor market? Our experience has been there's a huge hunger for the kind of insights we have. I think that's partly, as you say, the scale. So we can not only give a very macro picture of what's going on across the world. So, for example, we work with organizations like the World Bank and the World Economic Forum. And there the focus is to try and track what's happening globally. But also we have the capacity to really zoom in and understand at a very local level what's happening. So, for example, a lot of the work that we do is partnering with cities to help them understand what is happening on the ground concretely in their labour market, who's moving in and out, what new jobs are emerging, what new sectors are on the rise or indeed on the decline. So, for example, we worked here locally with the in, in, in the city of Brussels with the Deputy Prime Minister and there they came to us basically saying, look, we know we're gold standard in terms of government and, and that, that industry's doing well, we're, we're happy there where we feel we need to improve is to diversify a bit more, that we can't just be reliant on the administrative and governmental sector. And we feel we have an opportunity to something in the digital space. Not many people know it, but actually there is this burgeoning startup sector. Can you help us understand where are we in terms of our strengths within that sector, how we're doing in terms of talent in and out, and what should we be focusing on? You know, what should the industrial and educational policies be focusing on to make sure that we can grow that sector accordingly? And what did you find? So interestingly, we did find that government is very, very strong. So it's 30% above the global average. Nobody's going to be shocked to hear that. But interestingly, we found a couple of other things. First of all, the impulse is absolutely right. There is a lot of those startup entrepreneurial skills in the city. It's something that's growing. The majority of open jobs in the city are for those kind of skills. And we also found a huge diversity in terms of 
migration of talent in. So the city gains 18 new LinkedIn members for every one member that leaves the city. And so you got this much richer picture of not just, I think, people default to thinking of Brussels as the EU institutions. So very, very interesting and I think to some surprising picture of what's actually happening on the ground. And are there many differences in other startup ecosystems in Europe, either between all the cities in Europe, and then I guess also between centres like Silicon Valley, like some of the big Asian centres? Because I I get the feeling that Europe has accepted the idea it will never have one Silicon Valley, but it's kind of a network of mini valleys, whatever the geographic metaphor is there. But it would be interesting to see whether they have their own specialist strengths or whether they actually have much more in common with the states than they would ever want to admit. So again, a lot of policymakers would say that to us there, you know, we have this hunch that we're better at front end versus back end or a very, very common conversation that we would have is policymakers will say to us, industry is constantly coming in the door and saying we have a digital skills gap in inverted commas. You know, as a policymaker, what am I supposed to do with that? A digital skills gap is, you know, basically everything from I need more people with Excel um, skills to I need you know, more um, neural network specialists. And the ability, what LinkedIn can do for policymakers and to try and help understand what's going on is really get into the granular detail of, well, this startup hub is really focused on a particular aspect of digital or a particular aspect of startup. So again, an example in Europe is when we worked with the city of Stockholm and there we found that they're very strong on the front end. So things like UX, um, user interface design, animation, you know, anything that sits on the front end, they were, you know, and again, it, it of course, historically is a, a center of, of design. So it probably wasn't a shock to see that, that we saw that transition from analog to digital, but that's really where the strength was, right? Versus other cities, we worked with the city of Amsterdam and there we would have seen more back end. So, you know, the more focused on the, the foundational architecture, of building up um, technologies and apps and that kind of startup scene. And of course, the value for that is if you're a policymaker, you're not, first of all, you're not just going in with the mud at the wall. Let's just try and be good at everything in digital. You realize that, well, actually, our strength is in design on front end. That helps you in a couple of ways. One, you put your bets there, right? You're not going to be good at everything in digital. But if you know that that's where your existing and historical strength is, and that's maybe where you put your industrial policy bets, Two, it helps you really attract in investment. So when we spoke to the city of Stockholm, you know, they were able to use the insights that we generated to go out to companies abroad and say, you know what, if you want to set up a center for digital design, if you want to be focused on, you know, user interface and, and, and that general space, you should come here because look how well we compare, look how well we're doing in that space. I am fascinated by all that. I'm a bit of a structural reform geek. And I wouldn't be someone who says there shouldn't be an industrial policy. I think there's probably some specific cases of market failure or where, you know, you're talking about real national strategic interests and you can't just, you know, hope that the market goes and sorts it out. So, yes, you've got to have some kind of industrial policy. But the sense that I have from all my years of reading on it is that really governments shouldn't be in the business of job creation. They should really focus on the skill development side of things Mm -hmm. or creating those educational centers of excellence and so on. Does the data back that up? Is that where you think this whole um, discussion is heading, that people in the policy field really need to focus on skills rather than trying to take credit for each individual job that might be created? 
Our experience is that's squarely where the focus is. And that's for a number of reasons, not least of which is there is a strong recognition that we either have an existing skills gap in, in labour markets or we're heading into them because we haven't quite figured out with the fourth industrial revolution what exactly are going to be the new skills that are required. One of the big scary elements of that future, and I think it came up in the event you did at the European Parliament in May, is that artificial intelligence, it's not a theory anymore, it's arriving in our workplaces, but people have very mixed views about that sometimes. And, you know, for a website and an organisation that's dedicated to jobs and the job market, it's it's hard to be that if everyone is replaced by robots. So what's your take on all of that? You obviously have a lot of data about how quickly we are integrating artificial intelligence or what might be coming next. So what are you telling policymakers on that front? You're absolutely right. It's a it's a hot, hot debate right now. And my view is that we the answer is we don't know yet, right? That as you say, that the debate ranges from the utopian to the dystopian scenario of the robots are going to take everything and, and there'll be no work left to actually the robots will enable us to have a fuller, give us the, the capacity to have fuller, a fuller and, and richer society and everything in between. And in addition to that, you the, certainly the reports that I read are very focused on you know, in 2030 and 2040 and 2050. We're much more focused on today, tomorrow, what's happening now and what can we do to ensure that we're in a better position tomorrow. Um, Are we getting any good news in manufacturing, for example? I mean, one of my hopes is that you can bring more manufacturing back to Europe if you can successfully integrate some automated processes and and basically make it cost competitive to have it here, where it's not worth the effort to move everything to an India or a China or another faraway country. Is there any proof that that is becoming a trend? One of the partnerships that we have is directly with DG Growth and with Commissioner Biancowska. And there, what we're looking at is precisely the transition that automotive is going through, right, which is one of those industries often cited as one of the most vulnerable or susceptible to this change. And one of the very interesting things we're seeing is what the transition means for skills and jobs. So what we're not necessarily seeing is displacement of jobs. What we're seeing is jobs evolving and adapting to take account of these new technologies. And so far, quite an encouraging picture. We've done, for example, a a deep dive into into Birmingham, which, of course, is historically a hotbed of of those kind of companies, advanced manufacturing and automotive companies. And what we're seeing there is that transition happens. So, again, people developing new skills and the companies investing to ensure that people are developing those new skills so that it's not necessarily a new job or a new role, it's more that we think of it as a job, as an an agglomeration of a number of tasks, and the tasks are changing and shifting um, to accommodate this new industrial revolution. But so far, the picture that we're seeing is quite encouraging. And for us, the most, you know, the most rewarding parts of our job is being able to, again, in that very concrete way, be able to advise that if we can take X, Y, and Z steps, then we're going to be prepared for this new AI revolution that's coming. And these are the best things that you can do to get the workforce prepared for that. And is there anything in all the data you've seen or all the people you've engaged with, is there any trends or or little snippets of info that really surprised you? You know, we get caught up in the journalism world about divides between North and South Europe or yes. East and West Europe and things yes. like that. Is there anything where you just thought, wow, I didn't expect that when you got presented with all the reports? 
one thing that's really stood out for me is just how how different labor markets are. So I think we can also ha often have this monolithic view of, you know, the European labor market or indeed a national labor market, etc. But actually, when you have the ability, which we do, to really look in a, a detailed, granular way about what's happening on the ground in a labor market, you realize that they're very different animals. So again, to your point about the differences of, of a startup scene. So everybody kind of thinks the startup scene is, is the same everywhere. You know, it's lots of beanbags and cool young people people run around in sneakers but actually when you dive in and take a look you realize that they're very different often very much rooted in the history and culture of, of the city and that manifests itself in very different ways depending on what labor market you're looking at so that you know certainly a big lesson for me has been to you know really think about the nuances and the specifics of labor markets and the policies that then need to be created to enhance those labor markets. And we see that time and time again, where, you know, these historical echoes through the studies that we do. So Manchester, for example, we partnered with the city there um, to help inform their new skills strategy. And what you saw come through there was, you know, these echoes back to the Industrial Revolution, where things like textiles had moved from, you know, that, that sort of historic base that they'd had to the advanced textiles that they're working in or manufacturing moving from that sort of old school base that they had to these new advanced structures. So that has been something that's come out really strongly for me throughout all of these studies. Mm -hmm. Now, one issue that maybe I need to tiptoe around or you feel free to shut me down if I do it the wrong way. But one of the other big trends in the labor market is hopefully we're getting more inclusive. And I noticed that you're pregnant. And I think there's a lot of people who aren't sure how to talk about those issues in the workforce. So I was wondering if you had any experiences from your pregnancy where you would tell people, do this or don't do this as a result of your experience. And or do you have any horror stories where you were just like, I cannot believe in 2018 someone talked to me like that? I haven't had any horror stories personally. Um, I have had a phenomenally and overwhelming positive experience in LinkedIn myself. So this is my second pregnancy. I had a, a child two years ago and obviously I'm, I'm as, as you can see, clearly uh, pregnant now again. Congratulations, uh, by the way. I should have said that at the beginning. New That's job and, start. yeah, okay. Start. Offer me the nicer chair because you definitely got the more... Oh, okay. Well, point you know. taken, point yeah. taken. That should be your question. Who gets the lumbar support? And that should be me. Um, otherwise, Otherwise, my experience, the only way it has been material is to make me more aware and more appreciative of the culture and supports that are in place, not just for working mothers, working fathers, but working people, you know, who have lives and relationships and, and challenges and opportunities outside of the workplace. And that's something, you know, as you say, there are, you do hear horror stories. We witness them every day. That's, that's the thing that gives me hope is that there are companies and organizations like LinkedIn, who, as you say, are extremely inclusive and extremely progressive on these issues. I, I guess you're a bit of a forum as well, where people will be able to talk about those experiences. Like maybe it's a learning process via platforms like LinkedIn as well. You know, the things that have helped me have been very, very practical advice, you know, and very practical supports in terms of, you know, how you approach this new phase in your career. And that can be, you know, talks, role models, just flexible supports that are in place, etc. My own sense is, you know, the conversations around 
pregnancy and maternity leave at work, etc., should be part of a broader conversation around different phases in your career and different challenges and responsibilities of leadership. So, for example, one thing that I think about in this new role is my responsibility to my team to ensure that irrespective of why I may be on leave or not around for a while, that the team can step up and step in and take on that role. I think that's one of your primary responsibilities as a leader to ensure that no matter whether you're on leave for um, for parental reasons or because you got run over by a bus tomorrow, that actually you have a team in place that has that ability to ensure that the organisation and its members in our instance continue to be well served. A hundred percent. It was a lesson I don't think I fully followed, but I got taught it when I was 20 or 21. And it, and it came from an activist. I'm not sure I agreed with him on everything, but he said, if it can't happen without you, it shouldn't happen at all. Exactly. And it's something you always try and remember, whether it's uh, planning for succession in an organization, whether it's yeah. building a proper team. So I 100% recommend that advice. Maybe let's finish on a summer note. Um, I, I don't know how you do it. You're not sweating. I'm sweating here uh, as we record this conversation. But are you heading off anywhere? Have you got any summer reading tips or holiday tips you want to share with our listeners? So I'm just back from two weeks holidays in gorgeous East Cork. Um, So uh, for those of you who don't know, we're experiencing a summer heat wave in Ireland, which is a long time coming. So uh, we all feel like we've relocated to the the French Riviera. Is everything still green or is it now the rolling yellow hills of Ireland? No, lush, lush green fields of yore. Still there with some sunshine, which is very, very welcome. So I disconnected entirely for two weeks, which was lovely. I've gotten quite into audiobooks recently actually so I'm more I tend to have a couple of audiobooks on the go at the moment any reading tips um, I just finished John Meacham's Soul of America actually which I really enjoyed and, and the impetus behind that book was the context in the US and some of the some of the many of the concerns around the current administration direction of the country and he takes a historic look back at other dark moments and, and dark nights in American history and looks at what happened and how did we come through it and hopefully that will give some instruction and some hope as to you know where the, the future of the country may lie so I'm, I really enjoy that and would recommend that one. Excellent and I'm going to recommend Secret City which is uh, now a Netflix series but it originally appeared on Australian television in 2017 and I'm ashamed to say I had no idea about it it was my American fiance who pointed it out and got us watching it and it's like a more realistic house of cards okay. so all of the drama without the American tinge that, <laughs> that takes House of Cards one step too far sometimes. So definitely get on Netflix and check that one out. Uh, Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me. That was Sue Duke, the Global Head of Public Policy for LinkedIn. Next up, the podcast panel. Happy August, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast panel. Hi, Alva. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. Well, let's get started on a positive note this week. I think we should begin with an EU thumbs up. And Alva, you were nominating that we have the lowest unemployment rate in both the Eurozone and the EU in 10 years. Yeah, since the recession, it's the lowest unemployment rate. So I was going to give that a thumbs up. But I think we still have to kind of remember that 
Greece and Spain and Italy are still the highest. Ireland has actually gone down dramatically and is kind of in the middle now, which definitely shows that we've done a lot of recovering. But there are other places, yeah, that need to work a little bit harder maybe and for the EU to support a bit more, I think, particularly Greece, which is now at 22%. Yeah, let's firm it up with some numbers. So the Eurozone average is 8.3%. The overall EU average is down to 6.9%, and that's because some of the countries that have been growing the fastest, like Poland, never joined the euro. And then, like you were saying, Spain and Greece, we're in the 20% zone, basically. Lena, what's your reaction? It's a great thumbs up, uh, certainly, um, as uh, we are getting to the mood of the holidays. And I'm sure the commission and the commissioners would be very happy to hear all the great achievements. And I was thinking that many of the current governments in the EU claim that the migrants will come and take the jobs of the nationals and they will disrupt the whole system and unemployment will will rise. And uh, great that that these numbers just prove that it's not true. And in fact, people are desperate in some countries and in some sectors. And I think this came out in the interview with Sue Duke from LinkedIn, that we can't treat whole continents as a single labor market. It's a lot more specific than that. But in some countries, the unemployment rate is below 4%. And that is when you are really scratching around and are actually desperate for workers. It's not that there's a surplus at all. Yeah. Yeah. And then also in the same announcement, they noted that youth unemployment was actually dropping, but not, I think, when I was looking at the numbers, not as much as they could be, and still quite high in some countries. Yeah, so that's another still an element of the unemployment crisis post-recession is this this idea that it's more difficult as a young person to get a proper paid long-term job the way that their parents would have had. Exactly. Well, let's dial the happiness down and go into some of our EU WTF moments. We've got two examples of cost shifting in Belgium. The first one is that the EU has an arrangement that will see the Belgian taxpayers pay 70 million euros to help construct a fifth European school. So a school for the children of people who work for the EU institutions. And they're going to build that on the site of the old NATO headquarters in a district of Brussels called Iver. That might be a little bit annoying to some Belgian taxpayers, wouldn't you say? Or, yes, I mean, I'm a Belgian taxpayer. Are you annoyed, Alva? I uh, it would it I do find it a bit frustrating and it was funny because our producer was asking us would this outrage anybody else in Belgium and I think probably it does but they they might not necessarily be expressing it in the same way that we do in the EU bubble which is what you know, loudly so, and with certainty in that they're <laughs> right and that the world should revolve around them well with probably a little bit more background to how people get jobs in the commission it isn't true that they don't pay any tax at all, but you know these systems that exist in other countries, for example, the UN, etc. People usually, you know, have to send their children to normal schools, whereas there's this whole other quite elite set of schools that work around the European Union. Although it isn't just European Union officials that can send their children there, I believe also NATO and the UN organisations can also as well. But yeah, setting up a completely separate system to their school systems that actually, and they're very, very elitist. I know quite a few people who've gone to these schools before and they're basically... Definitely are. Their parents all speak three or four languages. Their parents all have relatively large incomes. You know, it'd be very rare for a kid at a European school to be in a household with net income of less than 10,000 euros a month. 
in, in the pockets of their parents. Unless, of course, it's a single parent family. Lena, what's your take on all of this? It contradicts the European integration. Um, so why uh, some Europeans are being treated differently and put aside from other Europeans. I mean, I can see that in my part of the world where you have the, the Middle Eastern and then you have the foreigners, who the, there's the international community school, and, and we understand because they don't need to speak Arabic. But uh, we are in Europe, and it, Europe always talks about integration and integrated values and sharing this. So I don't understand when you put kids behind walls and they are treated differently from the others. Well, one reason is that, for example, if you are from Lithuania or Hungary and you want your children to learn in the language that matches their passport or where they were born, the Belgian system isn't going to offer the Hungarian stream, for example. And I suppose there's also the argument that if you suddenly took away those schools, you would be sending those kids into a Belgian system that maybe doesn't have the spare capacity to absorb them. There's just one point I'd like to share with you, Ryan. You know, I run my own agency and I always look when I want to recruit someone for a very self-made candidate, students that they worked hard, they got scholarship, that they traveled, that they integrated. This is a very important aspect when you are looking into the personality of your future employees or your team member. So you throw out the candidates who came from a European school? I would prefer to hire and to include in my team very hardworking, self-made students that they had the challenges and they proved themselves to life and they are so open to other cultures, religions, uh, languages. And I have both in my agency and I, and I can see with all my love to all my team, but uh, still I can see the difference. Well, it's interesting because I was discussing this with my partner who's Belgian and we were just saying, what are our views? I went to a private school, which she absolutely hates. Then I said, but if we could send our children to a European school, would you? Both of our answers were yes, because they provide you with a network that is basically invaluable. And now it's being funded by the Belgian government. I think that's what we should be discussing. I think it's elitist, but I do think if I had the choice to send my children there, which is kind of paradoxical, I would probably send them to these schools. Well, speaking of what the Belgian government does or doesn't fund, I tell you what they're not funding, that is journalists and our ability to participate in EU summits that will be taking place in Brussels in the future. News broke to us this week that we will be charged €100 per year in order to get accredited to cover the leaders and other summits that take place here in Brussels. And that apparently is a decision that actually took place in May, but nobody spoke to any journalists about it while they were developing the plan. No one told any journalists that it happened after they agreed to the plan. And uh, yeah, I, I find that very problematic that you would be charged to uh, participate in events of public interest. We can go through all the different angles on that. I think it would be a little bit different if it was something that covered everything that the EU institutions did in a given year, if it lasted for more than six months at a time, or if it was something that was charged to everyone who was going to the summit. But it's not. It's something that uh, apparently is only going to be paid by journalists and some contractors who aren't already part of other screening processes. You know, Ryan, there are always headquarters agreements. When there's a country to host an international institution or intergovernmental institutions, they sign an agreement with the country. And I was wondering if in the headquarters agreement of the EU institutions, 
with the Belgian authorities, allow them to do these things. I've lived this experience a um, few years ago when we were setting an intergovernmental organization purely funded by the EU in Barcelona, and the host country cannot act on its own, cannot change on its own. So maybe as well we would need to know if there has been any kind of conversation and negotiations between the Belgian government and the EU institutions on that, and then they just agreed and just broke the news because I saw... I think that's pretty clear. We got the news from the European Council, who are essentially doing the collecting, even if they're not the ones levying the fee. So very clear that the European Council is signed up to this. And interestingly, the European Commission opposes it and said that they would not levy any such fees or collect any such fees at their own events and all but invited journalists to make complaints to them that they would then investigate. Yeah, I think it's a pity in the current environment that we have to be creating a barrier between journalists and important EU summits like this. It's kind of really goes against what the new, at least, lease of the, at least the Juncker Commission was to bring people closer to the European Union. The Council is notoriously opaque. I do wonder what's behind it a targeting of journalists with a fine like that. What if you don't have it and you just are sent there, you know? Oh, no, there we go. Let's get into the other layers. It's only for journalists who live in Belgium. Oh, that's so weird. Why? Because you can go and get your security clearance from some other national authority if you're just visiting for the summit. So the people who already pay upwards of 60% of their income in taxes, social insurance and other charges to the state of Belgium... Apparently, that's not enough to cover our accreditation to summits. And the money will be split between the four separate security agencies that have to be involved in each accreditation, which lasts for only six months. So I have questions about why there need to be four agencies in the first place, but that's up to Belgium. Then secondly, if I have the right to live here, which I do on a five-year residency, I'm safe enough to be in the country for five years, and nothing about my situation has changed over the last six months. Why are we going through this six-month process? Either you should accredit people per summit, which is where the the risk occurs at the summit, so you should re-accredit everyone each time, or you should do it on some kind of actual risk-based measurement or simple system like an annual pass or something like that. The whole thing is ridiculous. I think guys, we should strike all the journalists. Just boycott one summit and let's see the reaction. I think we could maybe boycott the payment. I'm not sure that any journalist would ever boycott an event like that. It's too much of a or at least the some, some like a percentage do like show something and, and protest. Why not? I'd love to see the evidence base. If someone pulled out a genuine set of statistics that showed that it cost 100 or 120 euros or whatever it is to process those applications, then that could be an evidence-based way to say there needs to be a contribution. But no evidence, no consultation, discrimination, and we already pay massive taxes. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you, Lena. Thank you, Alva. It's a pleasure. Remember, if you have not joined our community formally, go to politico.eu forward slash registration. If you sign up, we'll send the podcast to you each week, invites to any podcast-related event, and the community will get bigger and better. Podcasting is a team effort, so thank you so much to Nicole Fowlett, Andrew Gray, and Wei Dong Lin.